The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. Amen. Thank you, Jackie. Um, I'm pretty sure that song was inspired by the Heidelberg Catechism. It was written by Sky Peterson. But do you remember the first question that what is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer is that I'm not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And it says, he's fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Amen. Benediction. (laughs) All right, we're looking at at, uh, continuing in Mark 11. And uh, we're continuing with this lesson of the withered fig tree. And I had a couple people ask me, what, what was the deal? It doesn't seem fair that Jesus is, you know, cursing this fig tree. The poor fig tree, it's out of season. And, and uh, it's interesting. Nobody, none of the disciples have that complaint. Um, they don't seem to have a problem with that. But, but we do. And I texted somebody this week, or I just said, you're going to have to take it up with Jesus when you get there. Because I don't know what else to tell you. Um, he has his reasons, and he can do this to a, a, a fig tree. But he has a lesson that he does want us to learn, and it's this. Mark 11, beginning at verse 20. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up, and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Well, I hope that you can see that there, there's an idiom of speech here. There's a figure of speech. And sometimes we, we speak in idioms, and sometimes we, we use a lot of animals, and we don't even realize it. You know, it's raining cats and dogs out there. There's an elephant in the room. I'm going to get his goat, but first I've got to stop cold turkey. I've got to get my ducks in a row first because you're such an eager beaver. I'm running around like a chicken with my head cut off. Just a bull in a china shop. Enough of this monkey business. Just tail wagging the dog around here. It's a sacred cow. It's just a cock and bull story. And you just need to hold your horses. Right? We use idioms all the time. We don't even realize how much we use them. Well, in Jesus' day, they also used idioms and figures of speech. And this idea here of a mountain moving into the heart of the sea, you're like, whoa. You know, does this mean if I just ask it, I just need to believe it, I need to receive it, claim it, and then act on it, that it is mine. And the reality is, if that was true, then why, where's Jesus going right now? He's going to Jerusalem. What's going to happen when he gets to Jerusalem? 
Is it all going to be wonderful good news? I mean, he's going to be going to a cross. He's going to pray in a place called the Garden of Gethsemane, and blood's going to start coming out of his forehead because of the agony of the, the prayers that he's praying, and he's asking God to take this cup from me, but nevertheless, not my will, but yours. So it, it's not just a simple, just name it, claim it, you got it. And this idea of a health and wealth gospel and God wants you all to be rich and you just need to claim it. Go ahead and take that bigger loan and go for it and spend to the moon and God's going to provide for you. It doesn't just work like that, does it? Well, to think through this figure of speech of this mountain, I think it's helpful to go back to this book that we rarely talk about. and It's the book of Zechariah. And one of the main verses that we probably might be familiar with in Zechariah is not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Well, it's Zechariah 4, 6 where that comes from. And it says, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the governor of, of Judah, and he comes back from the exile, and he helps them rebuild the temple. And it's completed in 516 B.C., and it's going to remain standing. This is the same temple that Jesus goes into the day before. It's going to remain standing until A.D. 70. It's the temple that is built under Zerubbabel. And the Lord said to Zerubbabel, not by power, not by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts, who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. And he shall... Bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hand shall also complete it. So the very promise made it to Zerubbabel was amidst all the great obstacles, which are referred to as a mountain, and God says he's going to make them a plain, is that he's going to enable Zerubbabel by the Spirit not by power, not by might, but by his spirit. You're going to begin it, you're going to lay the foundation, and you're going to put the capstone on it. You are going to build this temple. It's going to happen. The mountain was the obstacle, whatever all those obstacles were. Now, what's interesting about that very promise that's made in Zechariah's day was Zechariah is given this enormous task to build the temple. And the mountains are all the problem. Well, now Jesus is saying about the temple that it's going to come down. This is going to be the end of this. It's not going to bear fruit again. And he's referring to the temple. He goes into the temple. Then he, then he, he, he has this fig tree. Then, he, comes, then he, he curses the fig tree. Then he cleanses the temple. And now we have the lesson from the fig tree. But it's all about the temple, which is where this mountain idea came from to begin with. And what Jesus is saying is that God is doing something different. He's going to, through Jesus, he's going to build a house of prayer for all nations. Well, how's he going to do that? Well, as 1 Peter says, where's the house? 1 Peter 2. We're all now living stones. And God is building a spiritual house. And the spiritual house gathers this morning from all over the globe. And a lot of places have already worshipped this morning. And they're bringing prayer to his name. His house will be a house of prayer for all nations. And Jesus is saying, I'm the temple. Destroy this temple in three days I'll raise it up. And now we discover we're the temple. And God's spirit comes to reside in us.
But what he's preparing the disciples here for is letting them know that they're on their way to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem is going to become, is going to be betrayal. It's going to be rejection. It's going to be suffering. It's going to be death. And all that's going to take place before resurrection. In three days, I'll be raised. And so Peter needs to have faith that God is going to fulfill his purposes. That Jesus has told Peter he's going to build his church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. And so even when things seem really bad, really dark, it doesn't seem like God's at work. Those would be the mountains. God is doing a great work. And the Holy Spirit is alive and well, working around this globe. And so what's interesting is they're, they're, they went over to Beth, Bethpage and Bethany, and now they're coming back to the temple. Well, if you look at a map, if you have one of those in your Bible, and I should have had a little slide for you to show you, but you, you would go through the Mount of Olives to get to, to, the, to the temple from Bethany and Bethpage. Well, the Mount of Olives, if you were to turn around and look back, it would be 20 miles on a clear day. You could see the Dead Sea from the Mount of Olives. So Jesus, when he says this mountain, he's, you know, he's saying, if you look at what he says here, he says, uh, uh, whoever says to this mountain in verse 23, I mean, he's certainly pointing to the Mount of Olives. Right here, folks, he's saying, if you say to this mountain, be moved to the heart of the sea, you know, it would, it would be, uh, be thrown into the sea and does not doubt, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. So um, another interesting allusion to Zechariah. So Zechariah chapter 14, Zechariah speaks of the Mount of Olives splitting in two. So this is Zechariah 14, 4 and 5. On that day, his feet shall, shall standing in the, on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains for the valley of my mountains shall reach to Azel. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with it. Kim, do you mind just turning off the... Uh, I'm hearing a little... Darth Vader sound in the background here of the, the, uh, the base module. Um, so Jesus is alluding to this Zechariah 14 that he's referring to something prophetic in the future, that there will come a day when Jesus is going to come back and he's going to come back where? To the Mount of Olives and he's going to split it. And he's going to move these, this mountain and now he's, he's making an allusion to that. But before that happens, there's going to be some hard times ahead in Jerusalem to where they're going. And so he's telling Peter and the other disciples here, and now for us to listen, he's teaching us some lessons about God is doing away with the temple because he's opening up that we'll have immediate access to God. The temple veil will be torn in two from top to bottom, and now we have immediate access to God, and we can come boldly now to the throne of grace. And so we're told in this text three imperatives. End of verse 22, have faith in God. Not faith in yourselves, not faith in your prayer that you named it and now you can claim it and now it's really the end of it. It's about you. It's have faith in God. Have faith in God. Think about that. Our world tells us to have faith in nothing these days except yourself. You don't even have faith in your doctor. Get a second opinion. Don't have faith in the church. Go somewhere, you know, stay home, do something else. Don't, 
you know, you don't listen to people, you don't listen to that news network, and you don't listen to that news network, and you don't listen to that party, and you don't listen to that party, and there's corruption here, there's corruption there, and you don't listen to anything. And they just have faith in yourself. That's not what this is. Have faith in God. Believe that you have received it. Whatever you ask in prayer, that's the second imperative. So believe in God and or have faith in God and believe. And the last one is forgive. And that's an imperative, verse 25. And so the title of the message is Basic Ingredients of Prayer. It's just two ingredients. You know, I have, I have one recipe that I make for our family. It's waffles. I, I can't cook much, but I can do waffles. Do you know why? Here it is. Here's how you make waffles, okay? Four eggs, two cups of milk, two cups of self-rising flour, and two butter sticks. <laughs> I tried a half one of those butter sticks, but you see how easy it is to remember? Just four, two, two, two. You can make it. And then, and then if people actually want to put butter on their waffle, I'm like, Are you, if you only knew how much butter was in this thing. I mean, that is, that is the... And you put a little, little dash of vanilla extract, and you're good to go. Just four eggs, two cups of milk, you know, two cups of self-rising flour, and two butter sticks, and you're, you are good to go. Stir it, cook it. You're, you got it, right? This is even simpler. Two ingredients. Jesus just gives two. Faith in God and forgiving others. They're like the two blades on a pair of scissors. And you say, well, which one's more important? Well, you tell me, which, which blade's more important than a pair of scissors? I mean, that's right, it's a dumb question. They're, they're both extremely important. You can't have one without the other. The difficulty with passages like this is you kind of look at this all week long, and by the end of the week, I had 45 pages of notes, and you realize this, have faith in God could be a 12-week sermon series. I mean, there's entire books written called What is Faith? And, you know, you got every passage in the Bible that talks about faith. I mean, we could just talk about faith for the next 12 weeks. And then forgiving others. I mean, that's, there's whole entire books written on how to forgive. And I read a whole book this week by Tim Keller, and it's 250 pages of how to forgive. And if you're struggling with that, I do recommend that book because it's excellent. I'm trying to give you seven pages of something, of like condensing that down of how in the world do we condense these two things as necessary for prayer. Well, let's just try and do our best. I don't think, as I've I've alluded to already, that if you look at all the prayers of the Bible, God often answers prayers in ways we don't expect. But most of the time, he does answer according to the way people pray. People pray for things to happen. They pray for, like, Peter to be delivered from prison. And they're, they're praying earnestly as the church. And then there's a knock on the door, and it's Peter at the door. And they shut the door in his face because that can't be Peter. I mean, he can't be here. I mean, we've got to keep praying for him to be delivered. There's lots of people that pray amazing things like, Lord, let the sun stand still so we can win this battle. And the sun stands still and they win the battle in Joshua 10. And you're like, wow. You know, there's just incredible prayers that are prayed. Where, Lord, you know, show me your glory. And God shows his glory. There's all, most of the time when people pray, God does answer. 
most of the prayers that are prayed are acute human need, but they're also about God's glory. And I think we need to be a people that just pray and believe that if we, we, I mean, Jesus just tells us to ask and it will be given you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door, it will be open to you. Like there's a, there's a rhythm here and God does typically answer the prayers of his people. But ultimately what he's giving them in, in Luke 11, he says, he's gonna give good gifts. He's not gonna give you a stone if you ask for bread. And ultimately what he's giving you is the Holy Spirit. He will give the Holy Spirit. He will give you himself. It's going to carry you through this. Now, there's times where people pray things like, like Jesus prayed, Lord, take this cup from me, and God doesn't take the cup from him. And I've, you know, I've said many times before that you know, Presbyterians only pray the last half of the verse and Pentecostals only pray the first half. You know what I mean by that? The first half is, Lord, take this cup from me, and that's all they pray. You know, but Presbyterians just pray the last half. Your will be done, Lord. Your will be done. They don't even want to ask for the, for the cup to be taken. You know, pray both halves. Pray them both. Submit your will to his, but pray your, pre- pray your request. Ask for the big thing, but then submit your will to his. Paul three times asked for a thorn to be taken away. But God gave him a promise. What was the promise? My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. That you have to believe. You got a bottom line. So have faith in God that his grace will be sufficient for you and his power is made perfect in weakness. God has promised certain things. And so when we're to have faith in God, it certainly means having faith in his promises. Why are you to cast your cares on him this morning? What's the verse say? Cast your cares on him because he cares for you. If you didn't believe the first half then, or the second half, you wouldn't pray the first Right? We have to believe that the prayers of the righteous man availeth much, so we believe. We have to believe, Lord, that you're with me, that I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Those are some credible promises from Isaiah 41.10. So whatever we're dealing with, okay, Lord, you, you promised you would strengthen me, you promised you'd help me, you promised you'd uphold me with my righteous right hand, you promised that you'd give me a peace that passes all understanding that will guard my heart and my mind in the midst of anxiety, and so I'm, I'm right now, I can't sleep, I'm not experiencing it, and so you pray the promise, Lord, in the midst of this anxiety, you have said, if I seek you first, and your kingdom, that all these things would be added to me, and so I'm putting you first, and I'm asking that you would help me that I wouldn't be anxious, as you've told me not to be anxious. You've said that you would supply all my needs according to your glorious riches in Christ Jesus. So by faith, I'm going to believe, I'm going to have faith in God that that's what you promised. And I'm going to trust. You see, that's a little different than the word of faith movement, which asserts that all sickness is from Satan. It's not God's will for anybody to be sick. They believe that if one does not get well, it's because they, don't have, a, they have a lack of faith. The Word of Faith movement sees that God's use doesn't see that God can use bad things in maturing his saints. They don't recognize that God doesn't heal everybody. As we're told, that happens multiple times in Scripture where people don't get healed. And the ultimate sickness is death and all die. Hebrews 9.27 says, It's destined for man to die once and then face judgment. For those in the Word of Faith movement, even all those healers and all those proclaimed healers, guess what's going to happen to them? They're going to die. 
<laughs> and they can have the greatest faith in the world. They're going to die. But so when we have faith in God, just don't take that and say, okay, it means I'm never going to be sick. I'm never going to get cancer. I'm never going to have any struggles. You know, never going to lose my job. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't work like that. What works is the promises of God, though. And those you can sign and turn them back to God and cash them. God has given you the two greatest gifts in the universe. They're eternal gifts. The two greatest gifts are he's given you his son. And if that wasn't enough, he gave you his Holy Spirit. Listen to what the scripture says, Galatians 4.4. 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you're no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an, then an heir through God. So now we are to believe in God that we are his children. How did children come to their, to their dad and ask something? They just come boldly. They just come right on in and interrupt. You know, you might be on the phone. You might be somebody important. But man, when they, I love those videos, you know, on, on, you know, these funny fails where the kid just comes right in to see their dad. You know, they just come marching right in there. Of course, you know, they're, they're, they're really important. You know, they're, they're talking, you know, some, you know, big thing on Zoom. And here comes the child, you know, and all of a sudden, you know, they're kind of freaking out. The, the child has immediate access is the point. We have immediate access to God. God says, I'll be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. The Lord your God is in your midst, Zephaniah 3.17. We are God's treasured possession. A mighty one who will save, he will rejoice over you with gladness. He'll quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. So believe, have faith in God when you pray. That God's not ignoring you. He's not, you know, keep, he, his heart is tender. He loves you. And so then we need to forgive others. So let's kind of talk a little bit about what that means in the culture in which we live. <clears throat> Some of you may have seen this tweet that was put out in, in June of 2020. This was right when the pandemic was hot and heavy. Um, this lady, Elizabeth Brunig from the New York Times said, there's just something unsustainable about a, an environment that demands constant atonement, but actively disdains the very idea of forgiveness. I mean, how are we supposed to live in this culture, she's saying. Yeah, it constantly demands atonement, but disdains the very idea of forgiveness. You see, we don't want to forgive often because we want justice. And that's the big term right now, man. It's justice, justice, justice. And Tim Keller wrote this whole book to show you that forgiveness and justice aren't at odds. Just because you do one doesn't mean you do the other. I mean, Jesus did both, did he not? He satisfied the justice of God to forgive your sins by meeting the very demands for you so that justice could be satisfied and keeping the law, somebody had to keep it. And then somebody had to pay for all the infractions and Jesus does both. So you only have the resources in the cross to deal with the issues of justice, which are huge. But this is a big issue in our culture. Alan Jacobs has written some great books as an English professor, was at Wheaton. I think now he's at Baylor. He says, the great moral crisis of our time is not, as many of my fellow Christians believe, sexual licentiousness, but rather vindictiveness. I don't know if he's right or not or not, because sex is a big issue too, but he's, he's pointing out vindictiveness is a big problem. Then he says this, it's in your bulletin, reflection quotes, social media serve as crack for moralists. 
There's no high like the high you get from punishing malefactors. And boy, do we see that. You know, these angry Twitter writers or, you know, these posts that, you know, there's nothing like bringing somebody down. And it's crack for moralists. Carrie Fisher, who you probably know as Princess Leia, uh, she said, resentment's like drinking poison and then waiting for the other person to die. And we know that when we live and we smolder and we hold on to a smoldering bitterness, is that it, it, the person who's in bondage to that is us. You know, as Tim Keller points out in his book, he says, some people think that by remaining angry, they're giving the wrongdoers what they deserve, but in reality, you're enabling their actions to continue to hurt you. What Keller says we must do, he said, if instead, bit by bit, you grant forgiveness in this way, eventually you'll begin to feel forgiveness. And one of the big points of his book is, you have to grant it before you can feel it. You say, well, I don't want to forgive until I feel like forgiving. And you say, no, but it's an act of faith that you have to grant the forgiveness and then trust that the feelings are going to follow. I mean, when Corey Tim Boom had to reach her hand out to the very guard that, that was treating her and her sister horribly in the prison camp, and this guy wanted to be forgiven, and she didn't want to forgive him, but she reached out her hand and she forgave him. And she said it was the grace of God flowed through her hand to enable her to do it. We have to act like that. Hebrews 12:15 warns us, see to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Well, the whole context in Hebrews 12 is running the race, running the race, keep running. And you that have these shoulders that, that lean down and these knees that are, you know, and this picture of this runner is about to fall over. But then, then you have this picture in Hebrews 12 while you're running along and you got to get rid of the things that are, that are, you know, encumbering us and, you know, throwing off everything that hinders and keep running with your eyes fixed on Jesus. And then all of a sudden you get tripped in the race. And this root of bitterness just trips you. And let me tell you, over the years, I've seen nothing like it. There's nothing like bitterness that will knock people right out of the church. And, and they're just, you know, so you have the, the casually de-churched and then the, the de-churched casualties. And, and sometimes behind that is there's, there's roots of bitterness that get caught up into all that. And we just have to be on guard first of all, for one another, is that it is, we all stink at, at reconciliation. We have to recognize that. Nobody's good at it. Nobody by nature is like, man, I am just good at reconciling to others. Are you kidding me? There's only one person good at reconciliation and it cost him the death of his son. We stink at it. We are either conflict avoiders or we want to get in people's face and blow up or we just don't want to deal with it. We want to sweep it under and not... And the reality is we have to do this business of forgiving others. And as Ken Sandy says in his book, The Peacemaker, you know, it's like we're all always dealing with conflict. You're either in the middle of conflict right now, you've just come out of it, or you're getting ready to go into it. Like life is full of conflict. But we tend to disassociate the people that have hurt us. And so you have these phrases in the Bible like Adam, as soon as he falls into sin, you know, he tells God, the woman you gave me. I mean, it's no longer his wife. I mean, the, the woman you gave me. It's your, I mean, 
where'd that come from? Or, or, or the, you know, the elder brother comes back, he hears music and dancing, and he says, you know, this son of yours, what happened to my brother? <laughs> you know, this son of yours, you know, he squandered your, your property, you know, on prostitutes, and he's, you know, he's all upset. Now, Matthew 18 says we're to do the Matthew 18 thing. Well, how does it, how does it, how do we do that? It says if your brother sins against you, if your brother, not, not formally a brother, or, you know, that, that, that other brother, it's if your brother, your brother sins against you, you go to them. And, and, and the whole book is dealing with this process of, like, how to deal with that. And you have these two different things in Scripture, okay? You have, Matt, you have Mark eleven twenty five, and then you've got Luke 17, 3 to 5. And you've got two different pillars that stand there. And one is, this is like, if you stand praying, you have to forgive. Anything against anyone, you've got to forgive. But then Luke 17 just says, if he repents, forgive him. And you got half the people over here saying, I don't have to forgive anybody because he hasn't repented. And until he repents, I'm not forgiving him. And then you got over here saying, whatever he does, just forgive him, whether he repents or not. How can they both be true? And, and the answer is, is that they, they are both true, but it's a process. Before you go to your brother who sinned against you and try to win him, you have to, first of all, receive God's forgiveness towards you. As God in Christ forgave you, what are you to do? Forgive others as God forgave me. So, okay, so we start to process how God has treated us. When we were far from him, he came to us. When we were ugly, when we hated him, when we were enemies, he's forgiven us. And so we actually have to have this positional forgiveness first, a posture of a vertical, relational, okay, God, I forgive this hurt so that when I go to him to present, to try to win him, I'm not going to choke him. Because if you haven't done that first, when you get to him, there's no way you're going to be about winning him because you're wanting to pay back what you owe. You're not willing to write off the debt. You're wanting to make him pay Pay back what you owe. You're, you're going you're gonna to come and, and you're going to want to do damage. And there's a lot of damage when we're, when we're in the right. Watch out, right? Because that's a scary place to be. I get to be the sheriff. I get to be the jury. I get to be the judge. I get to be the bailiff. I mean, I get to be the lawyer. I got everything if I'm in the right. I, I got all the goods. So watch out. I'm loaded. So we have to forgive first. And then it opens up the possibility of reconciliation and if they repent then we're able able to offer the transactional the horizontal forgiveness that can only transpire if the vertical has already happened then we can offer that but we don't offer the, the transactional until they actually repent that way there can be a sense of like sometimes people just want you to so quick to just forgive just forgive and they haven't dealt with the depth of how much damage has been done and all this is getting worked out in this book. So I would just encourage you, if you want the longer version, Keller's book of 250 pages or The Peacemaker, great books to read on that. But I do think just a couple things for us to think through. One is that we have to recognize we tend to exaggerate other people's faults by minimizing our own. So if you think about like when a cartoonist creates a character and you always do their biggest flaw, 
right? So if you're, you know, you're drawing a picture of Obama or you're drawing a picture of Trump or, or Joe Biden, you know, the cartoonist will blow up the one feature that they're really trying to, to make funny, and that becomes like the thing that you focus on, and they exaggerate it. And so we tend to do that towards others. Like if somebody has lied to you, then you say, they're a liar, you know, or if someone does something, well, then they're a pervert, you know, or, you know, it's like, okay, is that really like, you know, you always, you never, you always do this. You're like, okay, hold on a minute. Maybe it's not quite as, as crazy as you're thinking it is. We have to see that, first of all, we're all sinners. We all need his grace. Did you notice what was interesting about Joseph forgiving his brothers, the first thing he said? I mean, as we read that passage in the worship service, and here Joseph, who's a type of Christ, is, is sad that his brothers don't believe that he's forgiven them. So they're trying to go back door through some message that his father gave, and now he's like sad and he's weeping, and he says to them, am I in the place of God? Am I in the place of God? Am I in the place of God? Like, how could I hold a grudge against you? How could I not forgive you? Am I in the place of God? Am I in the place of God for me to hold a grudge and, and to, be, to hold vengeance? I, then I'd have to be God. I'd have to be thinking that I, I'm sovereign, that I'm the really, truly big offended party here. Am I in the place of God? I mean, here they've thrown him into a prison. I mean, they threw him down and they sold him as a slave for 20 years. And he says, am I in the place of God? Like, how can I hold a grudge against you? Am I in the place of God? That's how it starts. And then he just says, you know, God had a sovereign purpose in this, and he's able to see God's bigger picture. You meant it for evil, God meant it for good. And so he's forgiven them. And then you see this reconciliation that happens of, you know, in Genesis 45, he, he's weeping, they hug him, they're falling upon each other's necks, and they're reconciled. And there's something beautiful about that. That's what we want to see happen. And I realize that's a process. And if you've been through some, some big hurts, you may need to get some help with that. And counseling is often a helpful thing when there's been big things that have happened. But for most of us, they're often it's the little things that begin to build up that we haven't dealt with. But when we're standing praying, if we're still before God, is there somebody in your heart that you know that you're not loving as God in Christ has loved you? And you're not forgiving them as God has forgiven you. We need to just let that go. And what that takes, on the one hand, is a poverty of spirit, of recognizing my, my, my sins are like the Himalayan mountains. They're, you know, and over here is a little sugarloaf mountain. You know, like this, this sin against me is just tiny in comparison to the Himalayas, you know. I'm over here in the Rockies, and, and this is a little sugarloaf, you know. Like this is so small. How could, I, how could I have such a discrepancy? So we have this poverty of recognizing our own debt. But then we also have to have a wealth. We actually have to have a richness that can say, I can write that off because I am so accepted in Jesus and I see what Jesus has done for me. He's given me the resources that I can write off that debt and give that over and say, this is how God has loved me. I, in turn, will love you. And when we do that, not only do you re release that person, you're going to release yourself. And we're never more like God than when we forgive other people from the heart because 
that's what the Holy Spirit begins to work in his people. When God is truly at work in the hearts of his people, what does he, what does he bring about? He brings about things like humility, gratitude, forgiveness. And then there's a gentleness and a forbearance. And it's a whole different mindset than pride, dug in, resentment, not thankful, angry, bitter, resentful. You know, all those are like the fruits of the flesh. And so I think this is often a great barrier that keeps us from sin. And it was, it's a big deal in our culture, but it went all the way back to Jesus' day when the disciples, I mean, they wanted to call down fire from heaven. When these people weren't responding to Jesus and his ministry, hey, hey, Jesus, you want us to call down fire from heaven on those people? Let's bring it down on them. And Jesus like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know? We need to practice this forgiveness. And uh, I could go on and on with this, but I would just say this. To get the resources for this, we have to remember, let's just remember what Christ has done for us as we conclude this morning, is that we all have a record. And our record is big. It's so big, the psalmist said, if you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? I mean, that record has been added to every minute of every hour of every day. There's a law, I mean, and it's like, who could stand? Lord, we sin against you, thought, word, and deed. What we haven't done, and the things we haven't done, and then doing things we shouldn't have done. And so the, the omission and the commission is just massive. And the psalmist is weighed down by them, but then he says, but with you, O oh Lord, there's forgiveness. Therefore, you're feared, like you are loved all the more, that you would treat me like this. That our God says he takes our sins and he hurls them into the depths of the sea. And the idea is that when they're hurled into the sea, they're, they're just gone. It's like, it's like throwing a big rock and it's just, boop, it's gone. Horatius Bonar in his book, The Everlasting Righteousness, he says, this is what Christ has done on the cross for us. He says, both love and law have triumphed. The one has not given way to the other. Each has kept its ground. Nay, each is honored and glorified. Never has there been love like this kind of love of God, the love of God. So large, so lofty, so intense, so self-sacrificing. Yet never has the law been so pure, so broad, so glorious, so inexorable. There's been no compromise. Love and law have both had their full scope. Not one jot or tittle has been surrendered to the full. The one in all its severity, the other in all its tenderness. Love has never been truly more love, and law has never been more truly law than in the conjunction of the two, so that God will be just and the justifier. And so our sins are truly paid for, and now we're truly righteous now in Christ, and we are rich in Him, and we have all that we need now for life and godliness. And in all that he's given to us, out of that wealth, let's not be stingy and not forgiving others. So that when we pray, we believe God and his promises and we freely forgive. May God truly give us grace to be quicker forgivers and growing in that grace and extending it to others so that people would say, look at this person, there's something radically different about them. Let's pray. Lord, remove the hardness of our hearts. Melt that by your grace. Truly, it is your kindness that leads to repentance.
Oh, we came back to you and just like the prodigal did, still smelling like a pig, you ran to him and put your arms around him, kissed him, put a ring on his finger and a robe on his back, best robe, shoes on his feet, restoring dignity, reminding him of his sonship, letting everybody know this is my son. Well, we don't deserve anything. Or well, we don't even deserve to be hired servants. And yet we're your children. We are sons and daughters. Forgive us, Lord. We are so slow to run to others that come limping back. We pray that our heart will be like your heart. Give us grace, Lord, to forgive and not to hold grudges. For we ask in your name. Amen.